to be perfect is, you know, your authenticity is not there, if I was honest. Um, if we look around the people we try and empower, if we have this perfectionism ourselves, I don't think we're really setting them up for success. And, you know, for them to learn that it's okay not to be perfect is a really important part of being a leader as well. And I'd much prefer to see people give something a try and uh, not quite getting there or, you know, or getting and just giving the high five to them to go, hey, that was a great attempt, well done, great effort, and uh, versus them not giving it a go because they think they're going to fail. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an authentic leader, dedicated servant for global peace, change agent in cultural and gender diversity, and game changer in the world of defense. Her education includes a Bachelor of Arts in Asian Studies from the University of New England, a Master's in Policing, Intelligence and Counterterrorism from the Macquarie University in Sydney, and a Master's of Arts in Defence Studies from Deakin University in Melbourne. Over the past 35 years, she has risen through the ranks of the Australian Defence Force, starting off as an officer cadet when there were only a few females. Our special guest career has included Australian Army's Provost Marshal and Military Observer with United Nations Mission of Support in East Timor in 2002, Commandant of the Defence Police Training Centre and Commanding Officer of the 1st Military Police Battalion, Director of Special Operations Support, Australian Army Headquarters Chief of Staff and the Commander Commandant Australian Defence Force Academy. In 2016, she was the commander of the Australian Joint Task Force Group in Afghanistan, providing training, advice, and assistance to the Afghan National Defence and Security Forces as part of a resolute support mission of the NATO. Her most recent role sees her as only the second ever female appointed by the United Nations to lead a peacekeeping mission as a forces commander, United Nations Peacekeeping Force based in Cyprus. I'm honoured to have the privilege to present to you a next generational leader who is a New York marathon finisher, proud mum of two daughters, and member of Order of Australia for exceptional leadership, Major General Cheryl Pearce. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Craig, thank you. You've had a very distinguished career in defence to date. So growing up in South Australia, did you always have a passion for serving your country? Uh, look, no, I grew up as most country kids uh, did, I think, Craig. It was, um, you know, all things sport. It was a town of about 5,000 people. And uh, I knew that I needed to leave my, my, my local town, not because I didn't love it, but I wanted to be something, belong to something bigger than what um, Loxton, which was a town I grew up in, had to offer. And it was looking at the police force, looking at the military. And um, in the end, I was accepted to join the army and uh, hence the journey and now what as you said 34 35 years down the track you am so how influential were your parents and say teachers in establishing your values and characteristics as an influential leader yeah it's interesting i look back about going you know the leadership style i have and i look at my brother who's a i would call a very much a natural leader as well and that nurture versus nature and uh you know what it was. I think um, the value set in behaviours and manners, and uh, and how we were brought up was was really influential. About um, and I think the biggest one was respect, Craig. You know that's one that I hold through now. It's respect, respectful always. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. It's about um, individuals and people, and and also listening. Um, that active listening is so important I find it more so now than I ever have and um, so plus also the manners I think um, manners uh, is something that goes a long way and we get gets lost sometimes it certainly does so joining as an officer cadet in the 1980s as one of only a few females 
what was it like to kind of come into this really male-dominated field and how did you cope with that? Uh, look, I was 18, so I was probably the youngest in my class of officer cadets and uh, the shock, I call it the shock of capture, um, the shock of joining uh, the Defence Force. I think it was working day by day. The thought of looking three weeks ahead of what I had on my schedule was too overwhelming, so I just sort of uh, chunk size uh, bites at a time and uh, just went with it. We were a small group of females. It was the first time that males and females were ever um, training to train together. So it was an integrated force. Um, there were many that didn't want us there, many who didn't want to see us succeed. Um, collectively, as a group of females, we've we made friendships that are you know enduring today, and we've had a shared history. And but it was really tough. Um, I think for me, my robustness of um, growing up in the country. I came from a community that was generally a farming community where, you know, there really wasn't that equality. You know, there was, each had different roles. I never thought about being not as good as my, as my male colleagues. It was just different. So I didn't have any expectations of what it should and shouldn't be. So each, each one was just be the best I could be and give it, give it my all. So what aspects of defence really captured your heart and passion? It's about, it's about serving your country. It, it's a really, um, it's a feel that uh, you want to be part of an organisation to serve your country and to be something much more than your individual self. Um, you know, that teamwork, that um, relationships you have with your peers, that collectively you, you're there um, there to serve and you're there to improve and better what you know every day on what we've got so having that much bigger purpose yes so so around you did you have role models or mentors that you could really lean on or was did you feel kind of like you just kind of on your own and you just had to pave your own pathway it really was on my own look i look at um people have asked me that about role models and mentors as i i grew up and there wasn't many females ahead of me. There were a few, um, but uh, did I get access to them? Um, not really. You know, you're one of you're probably about five percent. Most units I went to, there was probably mm, two to three females. Very few officers, and uh, you know, it was pave your way. So your role models in were were males. You know, and I look at it in decades where my first decade my role models I wanted to fit in I just didn't want to be sounded out because I was a I was a female I just wanted to be under the radar under the parapet for my gender and um, just be the same as everybody else and the role models I was looking for were a little bit different then second decade I'd had children and so I was looking for role models that I could how do I have it all how do I be a mum how do I how do I be a partner and how do I be um, a great army officer? And uh, that was difficult to find mentors. And so I had to pick a couple of different people and I started to pull together my own threads about who I was and not following anybody else in a, as, a, as a role model. And then probably my last decade has been more about really that authenticity of who I am and what I believe in and um, being able to walk my own walk without um, without having to try and fit into somebody else's um, shoes in, in being that something different than what I am. And it's also now about giving, giving back to our younger generation, both male and female, but to be there um, to, to guide and to probably empower those now coming through to give them a sense of purpose and a belief in who they are and and uh, what they can do and achieve. So believing in yourself, um, as you say, they're kind of in that second decade where you had started the family. So how did you manage those competing priorities at that time? Look, it was um, it was a close fought race. I'll call it. Um, it was it was hard. Um, I had a really good support network. Um, you know, I had a. Um, and a husband um, that uh, was also working. He was in the military. I had um, I had friends, a support network. So who was 
who was the before schools, the after schools, the drop-offs, the pickups, and crisis management, all of those type of ones. And if it was anything, it was the girlfriends, if I was honest. Um, and the girlfriends uh, didn't judge. The girlfriends were just there. You know, you have your crisis days, you have your good days. But, you know, to be at work at 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock to do a physical training first up or to have to go away with work, it took had nearly took an army behind the scenes, or as they call it, the community, um, behind the scenes to help um, and support both mentally and physically for me to be able to be the best I could be at work. And, um, you know, my male colleagues at work, I, you know, I'd arrive looking, I'm ready to take on, but they don't know that I've been up since 4.30 that morning, you know, th- doing everything I needed to do so I could do a full day's work and still maintain a house and maintain, you know, the children and all their needs around the edges. So it was a t- it was tough. I won't pretend it wasn't. And we weren't still in an era where we had flexible work practices. It was you fit in or you left. And so talking about flexible work practices, has that changed, has the culture around that changed quite a lot now? I've seen a change. Yeah, I think uh, my assessment is probably the last decade. I think we have really, um, really focused on um, on an inclusive and diverse environment. Um, and when I look globally now, I think the Australian Defence Force is way ahead of um, a lot of its partners um, globally. And uh, the creation of that environment um, is really important. And so. We see where people can either opt to, you know, work at a 0.6 or a 0.8 and get paid for that. But there's also, it's a smaller changes of flexibility that, um, you know, sometimes you you need to adjust your hours slightly to the right or slightly to the left or need to have a work at home day or, you know, there are things that we do now in our practices that just make good sense. Um, there are some jobs though and, you um, where we are, where they're operational, they're on short notice to move, that it's just not an option to have flexible work practices. And that is where you pick and choose to work, really is where you are in your career, what you need, and um, how you can make it all come together. So I think the Australian Defence Force has moved a long way in, in that direction. That's great to hear. You talked about trying to live up to the perceived expectations or the actual expectations of those around you. At what point did you understand that you could be your authentic self and really sort of live what you thought was important to you? Yeah, look, I um, going through my more junior years, I think I thrived and I was able to succeed based off a negative, based off the fear of failure. I, you know, I was so I was so afraid of failing that it drove me to succeed and then when I was selected to command, so you mentioned at the beginning I was the Commandant of the Defence Police Training Centre and then the Commanding Officer of the 1st Military Police Battalion. It was during that time that I realised I got here because of who I am uh, and uh, it really gave me the confidence to really be that authentic self and just to go off my own um, intuitive intuitive leadership style, which was uh, more about, a lot about empowering those around me, um, my army values, very much respect, listening, um, involving working as a team versus more, I could be that authoritarian, that really sort of just, that sort of direct, and I, I still certainly do do that, but it gave me the confidence that I didn't have to be that alpha male style, or I didn't have to be um, what other people were. It was just developing my own style. And from that, um, and seeing that I could still succeed being my authentic self, was then to um, just really develop um, who I was. And then as I've sort of now tried to mentor and give back, it's really also helped me develop um what is important and um, where I focus and how to have that sense of purpose, not only for myself, but um, how to empower those that I work with and that work for me and that purpose and value add. How do you value add to an organization? So many people that are are really driven and successful like yourself have to deal with perfectionism. 
is this something that you had to manage throughout your career and how did you start to sort of change the way you you looked at that yeah it's really interesting i that's come quite late for me um i have struggled with perfectionism and um judgment judgment is probably another really big one that um has uh i won't say haunted but i have keep on having those internal self-aware you know my own self-awareness i'm aware that i um I am quite sensitive to judgment and uh, how do I com- combat that and how do I have that narrative in my head to to really marginalise that thinking and does it really matter what people think of me? It's how I think of myself. And therefore, how do I deal with that and how do I allow it to pass it off, not allow it to affect me greater than an initial hit. And that perfectionism is the same. And it really is about, you know, success comes off the back of failure and to give everything a shot. And I've not ever given, not given things a go. I'm quite happy to, to, um, to fail. Um, and then I'll go again. That's never been one. I've always pushed myself uh, to my limits to know what I can and can't do because I like to from a if you want to call it from a perfectionist perspective I like to know What my left and right of arc are what is the art of the possible? What can I do? Um, how far can I push myself and then I'll adjust off to go? Okay, that's where I can get to what is sustainable what's workable what is within my ability and what do I want to do versus actually what I feel like I have to do but that perfectionism has been there and it's something that I still do fight all the time and I have this internal little little narrative in my head that um, keeps churning and um, and it's okay for you know for, to be imperfect and actually um, we should be a little bit imperfect but to because be to be perfect is you know your authenticity is not there if I was honest um, if we look around the people we try and empower if we have this perfectionism ourselves, I don't think we're really setting them up for success. And, you know, for them to learn that it's okay not to be perfect is a really important part of being a leader as well. And I'd much prefer to see people give something a try and uh, not quite getting there or, you know, or getting and just giving the high five to them to go, hey, that was a great attempt, well done, great effort, and uh, versus them not giving it a go because they think they're going to fail. It's interesting you talked about judgment there. You know, I think judgment is that, that voice that sits inside our head. It mm-hmm. ruminates through there. Well, you know, approximately 80% of what we hear inside our head will never, ever occur. Um, but that whole judgment aspect, we judge ourselves for a long time. Whereas most people, unless you do something that's really memorable, whether it's a negative or a positive, generally within 10 minutes they've forgotten what you said or what you did. But for us, it sits in our head and we, we perceive that that's what they're thinking of us. So it's a fascinating thing to deal with. And I, you're not alone, that's for sure. No, I know. It's something that, um, you, and you're right, it is one that is just, um, we're our own worst enemies in our own judgment. And we perceive that others think of us a lot um, harsher than we think of ourselves. We are our own worst critic. And uh it's letting it go that is um, the hardest one to do. And, you know, I will have sometimes that I'll go to ground and I'll just go, I'm just feeling that little bit vulnerable at the moment. I need to just go low, just go back into, you know, I'll get into my fitness. We talk about, you know, um, wellness and everything like that. I'll just refocus into something else until I feel if I was honest, so I feel strong enough to mentally strong enough to go again if I feel like I've had a hit and then I'll adjust off and just go into something else and come back. And so it's actually understanding yourself and knowing um, how you can offset against other activities or do something else. And I find for me, exercise is my stress release. It's my my safe space. It's um, it's what I do to be able to be the best I can be at work. So, how would your colleagues describe your leadership style now, and and what would be probably the one big thing that's changed um, throughout your career? 
Um, probably I would be described as an authentic leader, generosity of spirit with a drive and determination to do my best would be probably if I was, if I thought about how someone would describe me and the, um, my, my adjustment over time is changing from trying to be what someone else perceived I should be. And when I was, you know, that, that sort of alpha male leader, um, approach with very, that self-assured confidence. And I never know that that's what they are behind the scenes, but that perception of I've got it all covered. I'm, I'm across every issue. I'm calm and I'm, and they never disclose how they feel and they always are just this really facade and I call it my onion rings and I had it when I was younger which was you had all these these barriers, all these um, layers and so people couldn't get to you but now I'm very much more, my adjustment off is I am who I am, I've got vulnerabilities, I'm, I've got strengths, I've got weaknesses. Um, and it's actually, um, for me now, it's very much about um, then supporting everyone else around me and working as a team to get the best outcome and to, you know, to guide, mentor, coach those that um, I work with or, or that work for me to be able to have that same approach and actually live with that vulnerability because that will bring out the best in somebody um, if you actually... Um, able to be that authentic self and listen, really listen to what other people have to say and not just wait to transmit your own ideas. So from the outside, the development of leaders in defense seems like a very methodical and process driven. What do you think are kind of the biggest benefits of developing leadership through the defense system and what could, what can be its downfall? Look, I think um, we are. We, we really um, strive to be excellent leaders, and we are. Um, I can't speak for the other two services because I didn't grow up through their system, but I certainly know for Army and even at the Defence Force Academy, we really strive about um, leadership. And I think more so now we're talking about developing the character, um, but leadership in its um, purest sense is we teach that from when you join uh, as officers especially um, it is about leadership and um, what that means and what our roles and responsibilities are and you can't take it lightly you know you're going to have soldiers underneath your command and we do it as a a very a similar style uh, everyone's this is leadership 101 and then as people develop, they will develop their own leadership style and adjust. But in the main, it is still quite, um, it's not rigid, but it's quite constrained within a defense environment to get the outcomes operationally um, when we do need to have that, um, that approach. So everyone can adjust and will come back in and work really well as a team because everybody has had that same training coming through what you see in, as people develop and, and uh, progress through the ranks is people will adjust off and um, they will adjust off to their own style. Those that don't tend to not succeed because they're not actually being who they are and people then, you know, they're giving mixed messages. They aren't good leaders because they think this is what a leader has to be in a certain, in a, in a certain theoretical way. But personally they're not they're trying to align to it but can't do so so they're not actually able to be that authentic leader what i've seen in the last decade is actually a real shift and that is a shift from um more that uh alpha male do what i say and very closed type of leader which is um show no emotion and very very um stoic I see now a lot more, a lot of our leaders coming through now are more um, open, uh, senior leadership especially, you have to be an active listener, you really, um, is to be that more open, authentic style of style of leader and so I think that's a real positive as we've gone forward because I think our next generation coming through are looking for that style of leadership, that's what they've grown up with. Um, as we've seen generational change, I think we see leadership styles change. 
but the fundamentals of leadership in the military remain the same. And um, I think it's a great start for any 18 to you know 25 year old, a great way. But developing people's character, a couple of the, the traits I think are really important: humility, empathy. The other. There are a couple of the qualities that uh, I know when I was commandant at ADFA that we're really trying to instill in individuals. You can't teach that. That is something that's innate within an individual. So let's shift a little bit here. So the United Nations talks about the involvement of women in peacekeeping operations, especially at senior levels, enhances the prospects of reaching sustainable peace. What do you think that is? Look, I, um, I think any environment benefits from an inclusive and diverse uh, workforce. I think that um, not everybody will, will connect with one uh, individual. And if you have a, a variety, not only within that workforce, do you start to understand and engage and able to relate to um, a, an inclusive and broader community your community that you're working to, whether it be in Africa or the Middle East or where I am now in Cyprus, you're able to engage with the communities in which you work. And to have um, females um, value adds to, to that diversity and whether it's in a role model way, um, you can't be what you can't see to do that. But also there's certainly, and especially in the African missions, it's very much in where the, their mandate is the protection of civilians. There is a real role um, for for female peacekeepers to be actively engaged with um, the civilian community where um, males are not engaging with the female population from in that in that space. So from senior leadership, I think it's the same as any defence force or any organisation. You know, it is always better for having that diversity of thought and to bring, to bring that together to get the best outcomes, I think is, um, is the best way to go. So in recent years, there's been a, a major shift in the duty of care uh, within the Australian Defence Force with new policies that addressed a much needed cultural shift. What effect has that had on the inclusion and behaviour within the Defence Force? Uh, look, it's mixed. Some people will fight it. Some people will say, you know, like when I first joined, you know, sometimes I take a big sigh because I've been around that boy when I first joined. You know, there's this thought about, oh, no, we, you know, I'll call it old school thinking where you're going to weaken the organisation, you're going to, as we adjust policy, as we adjust, we're not. You know, we have some really intelligent and smart and considered people who are thinking about these policies um, they openly do stakeholder engagement to have a look at which is the way we need to go, um, community and, and um, society norms. And, um, you know, it's creating, it's going back into creating an environment where people want to work. People would feel like they can value, have had a sense of purpose and to be treated with respect. So all of our work in that duty of care and then the responsibility that once they're in, you know, how do we retain them? And What's our responsibilities as leaders to ensure to look after them? You know, what do we say to the young, to the, you know, to the young soldiers, sailors, airmen that um, you know we've taken away from their families, to their mums and dads? You know, what do we say to them? And I think that uh, we have a responsibility as an organisation to really ensure that we have a safe and inclusive environment for which then they can work and then they can thrive and be our future leaders coming through. So you've gone from being in the field to kind of providing that educational aspect at the Defence Force Academy and, and now back into a, a, a newer role, which is Forces Commander at United Nations Peacekeeping Force based in Cyprus. What does that role include? Uh, look, I what it actually is quite, when you say that, I go, what does it include? Look, I command the force. I command the military force that is here. So... Our role is to um, ensure a stable and secure environment within a buffer zone. It's a 180-kilometre-long um, piece of land between, within Cyprus between the north and the south and to stop a reoccurrence of fighting. So I have um, forces from 14 different nations with me and uh, we use English as the means in which to communicate. Some are stronger at it 
Catherine's is not a first language for many. And uh, we work together as a force to to look after the ceasefire line demarcation. Just, we have many disputed areas and we have a lot of tensions. Um, also, we have a, a buffer zone and it's um, we're the only divided city, Nicosia, where I'm in at the moment, it's the only divided city left um, globally. And uh, it's actually trying to, for me, to work with both of the opposing force leaders, the Turkish um, mainland army uh, general and the National Guard for the Greek Cypriots. So for me, it's a lot about engagement. I work with um, the political side and how do we establish the conditions for a lasting peace and you know, it has been going for 45 years. So it, it's um, what something, some, something that seemed so simple when I first arrived is now um, not so simple. It's very complex. It's very emotive. And uh, it's, I don't think it will be, we'll have a solution quickly um, as much as I'd like to, as a military person, go, come on, let's um, move it, let's move it along and let's find a way forward. It takes a lot of effort to get small wins. So I'm part of a bigger team, um, but there's only just over a thousand of us here on mission. Um, most of it is a military force, and we have a small civilian component. And um, yeah, it's um, it's been challenging for me actually. It's something different that I haven't um, been exposed to. Commanding the military force is something that was is well within my remit, but. The political environment and um, that engagement at different levels is uh, has been prof very professionally rewarding for me. Yeah, so not not too many people ever get to set foot in the United Nations General Assembly. Yeah, what, what was it like to speak in front of the UN Secretary Council, and what sort of protocols do you have to go through? Oh, look, Craig, that was um, the Security Council. I had the opportunity last month to. Um, to present to the United Nations Security Council, and uh, that's a 16-member council, um, member state council, and uh, it was daunting. I felt like um, I felt like the swan. I was very um, smooth and calm on the outside, but it was um, very nerve-wracking on, on the inside. It's something that when you're a young officer, you know what the UN represents and what the Security Council represents. Um, is quite significant and it was a real privilege for me to have the opportunity to to present to the Security Council and to be responsive to their questions um, about um, my role and what we're doing uh, within within Cyprus and uh, yeah it was one of those moments that uh, one of those memories that I will cherish and so obviously with United Nations, you've got people from all around the world, um, different cultures, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, different ways of understanding or, or I suppose, uh, treating conflict. Uh, so when you go into places like that, do you find them really united in the approach or do they actually, does it give a good sort of debate from different sides and different angles when they speak? Oh, look, it is. They all come from different perspectives and they all come from, uh, and also different positions. And so uh, they all have the one intent. They want to find a solution. Um, but depending on whether you're an EU nation, a member state, or whether, you know, from what prism are you looking at the problem and who are your alliances with? And that becomes quite difficult. And there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes in the engagement with the different nations and uh, to find a way forward. And when you've got two sides, such as in Cyprus, you know, you, you've got the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots, and then you have Turkey and Greece and behind that, and then you have the P5, which is um, our, our key permanent members of the Security Council and their, their agendas, it becomes, um, the nuances around the edges really becomes quite difficult. Um, they all still have got the same purpose, but it's actually how you get there becomes um, is the interesting dilemma. And for me, that is some of the, what I would call very professionally challenging and rewarding is to understand that space and to really, really listen. And what is not said is as equally as important as what is said. And uh, for that, that I um, feel quite blessed that I've had that 
that opportunity and, and this experience that I'm going through. Yeah, we all know diversity within leadership or diversity within decision-making is very powerful and really important. So it's great to see that you're experiencing that. What do you do to ensure that you are mentally and physically fresh so that you can kind of bring your A-game to work and then obviously when you're at home? Look, I, um, I've said before, look, for me, fitness has always been my stress release. Uh, probably more probably more recently, it's been a whole of body wellness. Um, health has taken on a broader aspect in, in mind and body. Um, I've sort of now connects, I've experienced where my mind has overtaken my body and I crashed my body through an ultra marathon once I just overrode what my body could do with my mind and that sort of is a bit scary. So I now know that how strong in my mind I can be that I really focus on listening to my body now more so rather than just telling it what to do. And uh, for that I, re- you know, I'd say five to seven times a week I'm active, I'm out doing something because I find it, um, I need it as my stress release but also need it for my mind um, and just to to clear it is probably a better word. So, And my family will tell me that if I don't do something, but every two days they tell me to get out and go and do something. <laughs> but, you know, equally as my own self with exercise and sport, you know, I've got a great partner who's most who's so supportive. I've got um, two daughters who, you know, are very proud of me and what I do and I speak to them most days even though they aren't with me. Um, so I've, yeah, and some really great girl, girlfriends and friends. I'm surrounded by some really positive and optimistic people, um, who are great go-to people when I'm, when I need and when I don't need. So they're always there for me. And you, you talked about ultra marathon there, but I know you completed the New York marathon in recent times. What was that experience like? And is there a next challenge? Look, uh, yeah, Craig, my my background is um, I was never far, so I kept on going, well, if I can just keep going, um, that might be the areas that I might do well in. So I thought if I could just uh, plot along. and So New York was actually a different experience for me. My partner, Paul, um, went through um, life-saving um, cancer surgery two years ago this week, and um, we sort of said when he was um, trying to recover that let's have a goal and it was a New York marathon and I'd done a few marathons before and it was a destination marathon it was a chance that if he wasn't well enough even if he didn't get to the marathon he we would have a great holiday um, so the marathon really represented 12 months of a journey post-surgery and a journey of being in the moment, living life, and um, having the chance to experience, you know, one of those marathons with 55,000 of my best mates, um, you know, try, going through screaming fans uh, around the five boroughs in New York. So it was one of those uh, great memories and um, really special um, emotionally. And uh, yes, and I'd say, do I want to do another marathon? I say no when I come out of a marathon but sometimes I think it's like having children you keep on going after one you go and I'm not coming back there again but um (laughs) I think um there is still more in me I'm just not quite sure what it is I'm sort of being I'm just training at the moment for short distance triathlons just to do a bit of keep the body body fit um but I'm wondering I'm only just thinking what can I do in Europe in next 12 months as an experience and something to challenge myself again. Yeah, I'll put my thinking cap on and let you know. So, so that we, would be wonderful. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, look, I do many firsts. I, um, I, I do love getting out of my comfort zone and um, trying trying new things. If I was, but then again, over here, I'm not as um, I'm not as um, adventurous as I used to be. I think uh, my my sense of safety when I see some of the things around, I'm not as um, ready to have substandard safety 
arrangements bring short um, my health. So uh, I can't think of the top of my head. I would say just doing what I do, my heart rate races when I'm out there doing, um, when we're trying to, you know, de-escalate and when I'm having either really difficult conversations um, with my opposing forces trying to get messages across or trying to work within um, stressful moments. I find that is sufficient adrenaline to to test me all the time. I So that's from a work one. Physically, I haven't got a new goal yet, if I was honest, um, to know what I'm doing. I'm just keeping a base fitness level. Um, but I'm... It, it, if I was honest, I'm ready. I'm 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 sort of chafing now to go. I need something to really take me out of my comfort zone for the next one. I um I just can't quite nail what I want to what I want to focus on. Um, so I can't really answer that one well, Craig, because I can't, don't have a moment that jumps to my mind. But if I was honest, what I do every day here keeps me keeps me challenged because it's not within my um, day to day, I don't control all the levers in this environment here, and it's forever. It's for, it's an ever changing beast. So, what is the one question that you would love to solve? Um, I actually don't have that. Um, I don't. I don't have that that yearning that yearning question it sounds really odd I um, yeah no I, I'm, I'm makes me sound like I'm not as inquisitive as <laughs> I as I should be in uh, in that Craig but um, no I don't have that I don't have a, a, a singular question that I go hey I've, I've got to got to focus on that I do keep on saying what next one of the things for me is is you know, I looked at your um, your CV, and I, I'll admit I googled you. Who's Craig Johns? And I uh, did a bit of uh, wandering around um, the internet to just understand who you were. And so, you know, part of our conversation could be a little bit more open on your background and knowing what you did. And um, so, for me, it was it is really. Um, Going well. What is next? I've had a wonderful career in the military, and it, it's um, it's closing. We all, you know, I'm I've been very fortunate. I've been very blessed and very privileged to have the opportunities I've had. But I'm not yet ready to retire. So I keep on going. Okay. So what's the next challenge? What's next? And uh, I keep on looking around, and I keep on trying to go. You know, when you don't know what you want to do, but you know what you don't want to do. So that's sort of the space I'm in. So I'm really excited about what are my next opportunities and, and challenges ahead, but I don't know what they are. I'm sort of um, loving what I do now, but I keep on, um, I keep on getting excited about um, life ahead. Life, you know, you only get one of them and um, how do you fill it? Yeah, for sure. I think it's important. I think, well, you know, looking at your one question, I think you've got one pretty amazing question sitting right in front of you is how do we solve this uh, this conflict and so we don't need a peacekeeping um, entourage in Cyprus. Look, that would be, Craig. Um, for me, um, when I see the, you know, the community, I see, I see um, such pain. It's 45 years, so you've got a new generation coming through who have got a, their education systems have given them different narratives. So you've got a southern one that talks about an occupation and invasion by the Turkish um, forces. You've got a northern Cypriot Turkish community who talk about an intervention based off of um, an ethnic cleansing that occurred um, in 74. So you've got a new generation coming through that both don't know what it is to be a community of Cypriots and mixed with Turkish and, and Greek Cypriots. But there are many that, um, 
you know, 45 years is still, it's a long time, but it's not long. You still got a whole community that were, that lost significant family members that were chased out of their homes that were, that were homeless and have had to reestablish themselves somewhere else. So, you know, I was speaking to my National Guard um, commander, Lieutenant General Lee Antares, and he trying to get from him, you know, what is it that your community expects of you as your, as their commander? You know, what does what does peace look like in Cyprus? What does the future look like? And what would people be happy with? Because for people who have lost their homes, do you ever get closure? Do you ever? Do you ever, can you get back what you had before? And the answer is no to that. But what would be, what would be a, a suitable outcome? And you're not going to please everybody, but what is it that you can get the Cypriot people? Because the identity to be a Cypriot is often greater than a Turkish Cypriot or a Greek Cypriot is a Cypriot. And uh, they're very proud, they're very proud people. And so for me, if I could help the community come back together in a bi-communal environment and live side by side and to get the political the political powers on either side to what I would get over the short-sighted um, relevance that they have and actually look at the and get over all the if something if I was honest some of the arrogance and some of the issues that I see and listen and work together to find a solution for the people of the country that would be a great outcome. I bet. So how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? How do I know when I'm in a peak state of mind? I know it when I can be in the moment. I can, I'm performing really well at work. I'm, I'm visionary. I can really focus on where we're going and uh, have my big rocks, understand what my big rocks are and continually be focused on those. But to deal with the reactionary and the smaller issues and to be in the moment all the time and listening. Um, so for me, it's it's not quite an out-of-body experience, but it's just being very, um, very focused, um, but very aware of what's on, going on around me. So you've got some gr- amazing insights and fantastic knowledge there. How can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to? Ah, look, I'm I'm quite new, if I was honest, to social media. So I'm um, I'm not very savvy in that space. Maybe a generational, but I must admit I get focused into what I do. And I, in the military, you don't have to quite con- be as connected um, as many others are. Um, for me, it's um, it's really about what I do now with Unfasip. If from a defence force perspective or an army, there's some great opportunities, and I really encourage you. There's a lot of online with each of those services. Um, uh, for me, for me personally, um, you can certainly reach me through Army. And um, but more broader is uh, UNFASIP, um, where United Nations Forces in Cyprus websites there. And uh, I'm certainly, I'm certainly on all the social media piece. Um, um, platform so easily reached and uh, you know I'd love to to reach out to people and and to engage with them because um, you never stop learning and uh, I always love the opportunity to think differently and to think about uh, new things and uh, new new focus and maybe that question maybe that question okay what is it that I um, what does I want to solve but uh, but no it's um so they can do it that way. Excellent. Cheryl, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning about your your career, your growth in both your leadership style and you as a person over the last few decades. And to see what you've achieved is phenomenal. You know, you've taken on what, what has predominantly been a man's world. You have been able to find your way relatively easy. Um, and I'm sure at times quite challenging as well. And you've showcased that leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter whether you're male, whether you're female, that you can be strong. If you believe in yourself, you believe in who you are as a person, be that authentic leader, that's when you really start to shine. Um, It's amazing to see what you are now doing there in Cyprus and hopefully you can continue down that path of resolution for them and help them find what do they want 
together. And uh, I think a lot of people around the world would love to see that. So thank you for, for your time and your amazing honesty and authenticity uh, for our listeners today. No, thanks, Craig. It's been really enjoyable. And when uh, you're over here and you're working in a multinational environment, there are only a couple of Australians that I work with. So it uh, is always really great to touch back home to Australia. And uh, I do miss it and I do miss our people. And I feel very blessed to be Australian and to have the opportunity to grow up in the community that I grew up, but to be part of an, um, a defence force and an army that I believe in and very proud of. So thank you. Today's Active CEO Wellness Tip is recover with purpose. To ensure that you deliver high performance every single day, you need to recover with purpose and have productive downtime. It can be different things for different people. It could be doing exercise, creative pursuits, quality time with family, meditation, listening to music or watching a movie. You need to find what works for you, what allows you to recharge the batteries, refuel the tank and ensure that when you need to, you have the energy to deliver great things. You need to recover with purpose and ensure that you are going to be on fire, on time and ready to deliver when it matters. Thank you for listening to a beautiful conversation with Major General Cheryl Pearce talking about leading from the front lines on the 50th episode of the Active CEO podcast. Life is not a dress rehearsal. How are you ensuring that you turn up, show up and are present? It is important that you are there for your people, your clients, and you are in the arena on a daily basis. Performance by design is the key to ensuring that your energy, leadership, and focus is in the right places at the right time. If you would like to understand how energy to perform can help you be a high-performing leader, then please contact us. Learn more about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.